Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman, and I'm here, as usual, with my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. It feels kind of lonely here with just the two of us. It is, and we're not even on the same side of the Atlantic, so it's it's brutal. Um, Carl is the host of the 30 Love podcast, which is also pretty lonely, with only, only two people per episode, but... It's a wide range of people, so if you listen to a lot of 30 Love episodes back-to-back, it will not feel lonely at all. Um, so definitely check that one out, as well as the previous 36 episodes of this one, including our special Federer Roundtable episode from last week. Um, we're recording this on Monday, October 15th, so the Shanghai Masters are in our rearview mirror, along with Novak Djokovic's title there. We're closing in on the ATP and WTA Tour Finals, which we'll come back to in in a little while. But I want to start by talking a little bit about forecasting in general and you know wind up a little bit to get to Shanghai, since a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Um, Carl and I are both, both big fans of, well, at least recent readers and enjoyed a, a, a book called The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. And the first chapter in that book is about Daryl Morey, who um, changed a lot of the way that basketball players are evaluated. And one thing that really struck me... Morey is the Rockets GM. The Rockets GM, and maybe a future 30 Love guest? Big tennis fan. Big tennis fan, that's what I like to hear. So one thing that Daryl Morey said in that in that chapter that really struck me is is basically about the, the difficulties of, of forecasting in general. I mean, he... he he dealt with a lot of the same stuff that we've talked about from baseball and other sports, um, using data to understand the future better. And the really simple pithy thing he said was that it, knowledge is forecasting, basically, nor knowledge is prediction. And I've noticed in the last several episodes of, of this show that I often end up zeroing in on something like Arena Sabalenka or, I mean, all sorts of other prospects where... When I'm trying to focus on what we know about a player, I quickly translate that into, well, what do we think she's going to accomplish? So, I mean, we had a big chunk of an episode a few weeks ago just about Sabalenka's future. And sometimes it feels like we're focusing on something that's, I don't know, far-fetched or speculatory. But at the same time, to me, I think that's what... It's a good way of summarizing what we know about a player when when we start thinking about what we forecast for him or her. And... In that vein, Carl, I've, 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 I want to ask you about a player, but I don't want to tell you who he is. I want to give you the, the, a quick biographical sketch of this guy, and I want you to tell me what you think his future is like. So this is I'm the get- equivalent of like a classical music audition where the musician is not seen by the evaluator, and you just hear exactly. the music. Exactly. And this player I've heard is actually a, an excellent oboist, so it's a, a good... <laughs> What are the Yeah, I might have already given it away. So I I think you'll know who this is pretty quickly. And listeners, I'll bet you will too. But I I think it might be more valuable to pose these questions anonymously. I mean, for the same reason that that, uh, it's a good analogy, Carl, to to think about classical music auditions because you don't want want any previous knowledge you have about the player to, to bias your decision. So, okay, Carl, let's say we've got a guy who's 21 years old in the top 20. Um, 
doesn't have a lot of titles, but I mean, he's the, he's the second highest ranked player under the age of 23 right now. Um, he's gotten to one Masters final. He's won a 500. He's won one more 250. Maybe the, the strongest item in his resume is he has six wins in his career against the big four. And five of those are in straight sets. So we're looking at someone who's one of the one of the best young players on tour right now, but probably not close to where Alexander Zverev is right now. So, given that profile, what what do you think the future looks like for that player? Uh, I think he'll play Davis Cup for Croatia at some point. <laughs> it's not Karlovic. <laughs> Damn it. He's so young. Um, Yeah, just based on that resume and trying to exclude my suspicion that it's the runner-up in Shanghai from yesterday. He sounds like he's going to be get into the top five at some point in his career and maybe make a slam final at some point. Uh, That's it? Uh-huh. Really? I mean, you you told me that he's he hasn't won a title bigger than a 500, and he has won. But yeah, he is 21. I mean, these these questions about young men right now are so difficult because, by historical standards, if a guy hasn't done more than that by 21, then he's not going to be he's not going to be number one. On the other hand, by recent standards, that's incredible for a 21 year old. That's way ahead of where guys were in the generation before, the generation that's now about 27. Uh, so, And unlike the generation that's now 27, this guy will not have to deal with nearly as much of the peak years of the all-time greats we were discussing on this show last week. So I may be underselling him, but... Um, Maybe it's because I have too much in mind who it is. So now I'm picturing like a 6'8 guy with a really big serve who just needs to work on his movement and and get some more muscles. And he wins Wimbledon twice, U.S. Open once, and peaks at number one. Somewhere between those two, that's where I see this guy. Okay. And... And obviously Carl knows who it is, but listeners, just in case you didn't connect the dots, we're talking about Borna Chorich, who beat Federer in the semifinal in Shanghai, and then was pretty much routined by Djokovic in the final. So it's his best Masters performance so far. One thing I didn't say in my profile is that Chorich has had some injury problems that he's now bounced back from. And I think if, if he had remained healthy, then we'd have more things in that profile. And maybe his ranking would be much higher. I think he's number 13 right now. But probably at least have a couple more 250s in his pocket if if he hadn't lost so much time to injury and recovery. Um, and it did really strike me when I was was looking this up beforehand that he is 6-9 and nine against the big four. And, you know, 6-9 and nine doesn't sound that impressive, but when you consider who it's against, then, I mean, that's, that's really something. There can't be very many players who are better than, I don't know, 35%, let's say, against the big four. Yeah, my um, guess is Andy Murray is below 35%, although he doesn't get to play himself. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that <laughs> that would help if he got to play himself. Uh, Chorich's record wouldn't be as strong if he didn't get to play Andy Murray, too. Uh, but Chorich does have wins against three of the four. The only one he doesn't have a win against is Djokovic, incidentally. 
but yeah, and you're right, Carl, to focus in on on the age relative to the era. And one thing that I've been meaning to look at for research projects is is just to to throw away age as an absolute number and just use like a a positive or negative number relative to the current tour average or top 100 average. Oh, I like that. Average. That's smart. Yeah, or or measured in standard deviations. I don't know something like that. I'm 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 not convinced that's right um, because I don't know. It, 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 there is something about the general physical maturation process that seems relevant as well. But but yeah, I think there's there's definitely something there. And and you're absolutely right to say when you're looking at someone who's almost 22 years old, you don't have to go back very far before 22 was make it or break it time. But it's not. No, not at all. Um, what do you think, Carl? Uh, I want to get to Djokovic in a minute, but let's start with Federer. I mean, this this was a, a decent opportunity for Federer. It's not, I think the the consensus was the the courts were playing pretty quick, so good conditions for him. Uh, didn't really cruise at all. Lost a set to Bautista Agu, I think, and then ultimately lost to Chorich in the semifinal. What do you take from that for Federer? Well, he had some nice wins, which he hasn't had many of recently. I mean, he beat Kyrgios at the U.S. Open, which was of debatable value based on Kyrgios's form that day and level of interest in that tournament. And he's he struggled mightily. He lost to Chorch in the Halle final as well. He lost to Kevin Anderson in his first big test at Wimbledon. So... Maybe it's a positive sign that he beat Nishikori in the quarters, although, again, on a quick hard court that really favors him. I was really struck by how dominated he was in that semifinal. The score doesn't do justice to it. He lost 6-4, 6-4, but his DR, or dominance ratio, which is percentage of his return points won to his opponent's percentage of return points won, which can be found on tennisabstract.com, was just 0.53 for the match. Yeah, that's for, really low. That is really low. I I looked at it in perspective, and with the caveat that this is missing some Davis Cup matches, although most of them are, are wins, it is the lowest to anyone other than Rafa since 2002, according to Tennis Abstract. Anyone. Wow. So Djokovic, Djokovic's most dominant win over... Federer was not quite that dominant. And, you know, there's only there's also only one hardcore loss of that magnitude since 2002, and that one was to Rafa. So really... Sam, just to, sorry to jump in, Carl, but um, if sometimes I have a bit of a hard time just conceptualizing exactly what DR means. And like the way I think about it is if you've got something that's that extreme, then... What that basically means is that Federer is struggling in almost all of his service games, even if he's holding, because he's losing a lot of service points, and he's winning very few return points. So he's always struggling on serve. He's almost never threatening on return, even when both players are staying on serve. Does that seem fair? Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, it was more the fact that he was generating no chances on return. He didn't have a single break point in the match. But he also, yeah, he, he faced seven break points and George converted two. So 
it, when you get an extreme DR like that, usually it, it means, especially for someone who's such a reliable server, usually is Fedor, it means that his return game is is just not accomplishing anything. And granted, these were quick courts favoring servers, as we've said, but this was not a particularly intimidating server, typically, not typically the, the main strength of George's game. So that was that was pretty disappointing. But then again, you know, if you look at some of these losses, they're kind of one-offs, and Federer comes back, and he's he's okay, and it never makes sense to read too much into one match. For example, the most famous of these Rafa dominations was the 2008 French Open final, and Federer came back to make the Wimbledon final and come pretty darn close to, to winning it against Nadal. So it, it doesn't destroy him in any way. The the bright the other bright side for him, this just blew my mind. So his DR last year was 1.42, so that's over the full season. And last year was an incredibly successful year with the Indian Wells, Miami, and Shanghai Masters, and Australian Open, and Wimbledon. Made it to the semis of the Tour Finals as well, lost only five matches. So 1.42 was his DR, and it was actually the highest in a single season of his career. Guess what it is this year, even counting yesterday's lops, or uh, Saturday's lopsided loss? I don't know, 1.3? 1.41. It's Whoa. basically so the, the same. So his second highest season of his career. Yeah, tied with, um, of all seasons, 2015, when he was great all year, but Djokovic was greater. Um, what's, what's fascinating to me is he's actually holding at a higher rate than he ever has in his career. His hold game is 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 better better than ever. His return game has looked really weak to me, but I hadn't looked at the numbers. It's actually, I mean, it's, it's not good. It's 38.3% of return points won, and that's down 1.5 percentage points from last year. Sorry, I'm just reading out stats from Tennis Abstract, but, <laughs> but I'm leading to a point. Here's what's wild. His break, his percentage of times he breaks, which is really what the point of a return game is, is that you want to break a high percentage of time to give yourself a chance to, to win sets before a tiebreaker or to break back if you've been broken. It's 23%. And that's in line with what you'd expect given his return point one percentage and his career numbers. Last year, he had by far the highest break percentage of his career, 36% without having by far the highest return point one percentage, he was just converting break points really well. So last year was a combination of incredibly high level and inc- pretty lucky or clutch, depending on your preference. So his clutch level on return games, that wasn't really the factor against George because he never got chances, but his clutch level in general on return games has gone down but gone down kind of to where it was before. He's regressed to his own mean on return games. And what we have is a pretty incredible season from a 37-year-old, but no longer in the top two in the world. Yeah, and that that's one of the big news items right now is this just happened, right? Djokovic is, well, making the final this week is what pushed him into the number two spot, but he went on to win. So Djokovic has another Masters and he's up to number two. And I think I have this right that, if he enters Vienna or Basel and wins, he could take over number one by winning one of those two events next week. Yeah, he's trails Nadal by 215 points, so he just needs to make the final. 
Okay, yeah, there you go. Uh, and we Actually, know I don't it. know what he did last year at those events, but I don't think he did anything. He wasn't playing at that point, right? Yeah, he wasn't playing, so this is all, all free points right now. Um, and we know Nadal isn't playing in Basel or Vienna. Um, yeah, I think Nadal is still scheduled to come back in Paris, but I don't think anyone will be surprised if he doesn't, uh, knowing knowing the state of his health. So, so okay, let's talk about Novak. Um, I, I think this is very typical for this podcast and maybe most tennis podcasts that somehow in a week that Novak Djokovic does another amazing historic thing and wins a tournament, we end up talking about Federer. So apologies to all of our diehard Djokovic fan listeners. Um, so Djokovic now has another Masters. He is up to number two. He's poised to retake number one. I saw a, a tweet make a pretty a pretty broad striking claim that and we all know Djokovic's return of serve is outstanding, maybe the best of all time. Um, this, this person went one step further and said that Djokovic's return, the difference between his return and the rest of the field in terms of return of serve is bigger than any other single shot from any player. Uh, so I don't know. Are we talking about Isner's serve, Del Potro's forehand, uh, Monica Nicolescu's slice forehand. I'm not sure what the what the overall scope of the the point was, but do, do you think that's right, Carl? That the return of serve is that good? Wow, I don't know. I I hear commentators try to assign credit to just the return of serve and rank different returns of serve all the time and. It's it's undoubtedly true that Djokovic's return of serve is incredible and possibly, probably the best of all time, but it is so hard to separate it from what happens after the return of serve. Now, points are short on average, but they still usually last beyond the return of serve, or at least the the uh, yeah the median rally length is is longer than that. So. Djokovic is pretty great afterwards. Like he he takes advantage of a good return of serve really well. I think you you have tried to study this yourself with the kind of win percentage after each shot, and you've shown how quickly Djokovic neutralizes it. So it suggests his return is really that good. Um, so maybe, and I'd love to see more analysis of it using data like like what Hawkeye gets that could really give us more of a sense of average depth, um, percentage of returns made on similar serves relative to other players. You know, baseball has this great concept with fielding of like a guy makes a play, what percentage of players would have made that play? And that's kind of what you'd want to see on a return, first of all, is just getting it in the court relative to the average player. Uh, yeah, that it makes me drool just thinking about it with the, the I mean it's it's so cool in baseball and the potential in tennis is amazing too um yeah and there's I have I have some dreams of a big project with match charting data that would hit some of the same points but without having like exact speed exact location of a serve then you can't do exactly what you're talking about and it, it will always be limited and another factor that I thought you were going to say Carl but I don't think you did is when you talk about a return of serve, are we talking about everything about the second about that shot, or are we trying to separate return of serve skills from ground stroke skills? Right. Like even if we're only talking about the second shot in the rally, 
maybe we're just saying Djokovic has an awesome backhand and an awesome forehand. Yeah, and... which which especially with the backhand, he really does. I mean, he probably has the best backhand in tennis as well. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. So I, I was just looking at the the stats for the last 52 weeks, and above Djokovic is Nadal. But Nadal plays so much on clay, and I think for him, so much more of partly because the rallies are longer and partly because of how he returns, so much of that success is due to what happens after shot number two. And tied with Djokovic is a guy you found was the best returner or had the best return game adjusted for opponent, Diego Schwartzman. Um, you know, I think we sometimes forget that there are players who are great at something but are held up by other things in their game whether because of just lack of development of that skill or physical shortcomings, pun intended. And, you know, Schwartzman has to have an incredible return game to be in the top 20 as he has been all year. Um, but because he's not regularly playing finals, we don't, we're not, we're implicitly saying Djokovic has the best return among the all-time greats and that that's what we're comparing to. That there could be someone we, I haven't heard of, maybe Jeff has, who has an even better return game than Schwartzman, but because of the even weaker serve or other problems uh, we don't know about. So it's, it's kind of like greatest return among guys who are rock solid and everything, which, which leads me to say Djokovic wasn't broken in Shanghai. Like, yeah, his return game was incredible, but how about his hold game too? That, that tells me that there's a lot more to it than just that one shot that comes after his opponent's serve. Well, that, that's partly what we'd be getting at if we tried to isolate the return of serve from the ground strokes. Because, yeah, I mean, Djokovic posts really great serve stats, just like, or, or service game, service point stats, like, like Nadal does, and even like Schwartzman does from time to time. But that's not because they're super elite servers. I mean, they'll hit some aces, they serve pretty hard, but I mean, no one, if, if the game were just about serving, I could, I could give you 10 challenger players who will outserve Djokovic. But as long as they serve well enough to give themselves an edge, which you can do if you're six foot one or whatever and can learn to serve 120 miles an hour, then then the ground strokes kick in. So as long as Djokovic can get himself to that point where he can use those weapons that are elite, then the serve points are going to be there too. I think when I when I tried to isolate the effect of the serve on further into a rally, so how much a serve affected like three-shot rallies, one, five-shot rallies, one. It, I think it turned out that for Schwartzman, there was almost no benefit, but I don't think it was negative for the for a, a point that survived to the third shot. So basically for Schwartzman, he's serving so that he has an even shot of, of winning the point when it comes back. Um, and that's sort of the the absolute baseline that you have to be at, and, and Djokovic and Nadal are, are above that. So... So yeah, for me, it, with the return of serve question comes down to what we're trying to isolate, and maybe that is some degree of being able to read the game, anticipate, react really quickly, things that are important at other stages in a tennis rally as well, but are super important when you're trying to respond to one of the world's best servers trying to hit it by you with all the advantages on their side. Maybe the flip side is you could say that someone with incredible return stats, that return stats are a decent proxy for ground stroke skill, which which is maybe obvious when you say it, but that 
right now the stats that we have are really just telling us these guys are incredible from the baseline. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe we'll maybe even with match charting data that will be enough to to isolate the return of serve. I mean, I, I can think of some ways to do that, but um, but it would be tricky and it would be really tough to just to tease out the the ground stroke skills. So talking about how great Djokovic is, whether he's the best return of, or whether his return of serve is that great or not. uh, I wrote something on the tennis abstract blog, I guess all of two days ago that, that applied an an algorithm I've used for grand slams to master series events. And we talked about this some in the, in, in our giant roundtable podcast last week and talking about the everyone's career master's tallies. And Carl, tell, stop me if I, I have this wrong, but going into this week, Nadal was leading by two. I think it was 35 to 33. Um, and Djokovic now has one Shanghai, so he's up to 34. And Federer's back at 27 or 28, something like that. According to your post, it was 33 to 31 going into this week. There we go. 33 to 31 going to this week. And when I adjusted for difficulty for how good the opponents were that these players had to face, um, both Djokovic and Nadal have faced more difficult than average opponents. And largely that's because of each other and the rest of the big four. I mean, they're, they're not only among the best of all time, they're regularly playing others of the best of all time. But Djokovic's paths were harder. So when I calculated it, a couple days ago, Nadal still had the edge, but it was by like a quarter of one title. So they're both around 35. And this one actually turned out to be quite weak as well, which you can, we could have guessed given it was Chorich in the final. And even with the Federer win, Chorich is not among the all-time greats just yet. So when I ran the same algorithm, Djokovic's Shanghai title this week added up to 0.6 of a title, which is one of the the weakest ones that he has, he, he's claimed, but it was enough to push him over Nadal. So even though he's one back of Nadal in the official count, 33 to 32, he now has a slight advantage over Nadal in the adjusted for difficulty count. Um, so we touched on this last week, but Carl, I mean, how, did, how important do you think the, the overall masters count is and how much, how much do you think we should look at adjustments like these to account for the the different paths they've faced over the years? I like the adjustments a lot. I, I think it makes a lot of sense in comparing them. I think when you consider what seemed to be the consensus last week and probably is the wider consensus that masters are a secondary measure, certainly not unequal footing with majors. And then you also consider that Nadal and Djokovic are basically tied no matter how you look at it. Uh, The fact that one is slightly ahead of the other doesn't, you know, Nadal slightly ahead one way, Djokovic slightly ahead the other. I think it's kind of all a wash. What what is significant is they're, by, by Nadal and Djokovic back in the top two looking health notwithstanding like they could well be top two all next year which is a dangerous thing to say as we know people (laughs) said it about Djokovic and Murray going into 2017 um you know they could continue to pull away from Federer and I think that is a that is significant in comparing them to Federer so uh the race between the two of them is pretty interesting and I I don't have a great intuition about who's going to finish ahead. Djokovic is a year younger. Nadal 
feels like a lock at most of the clay masters. So yeah, it, it, it probably will be decided not for a while. Yeah. One thing that struck me that the data is in my post, but I didn't remember to mention it. Someone pointed this out to me on Twitter that, um, I, I, I took the average for each tournament. So I, I broke it out by, by tournament. And it turns out that, uh, for for various reasons, the Paris Masters is is the weakest of the ones that have been around for a while, and what what struck me is Monte Carlo was tougher than average, and I think I, I've always assumed that Monte Carlo was kind of the 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 poor stepsister in the the Masters family, that because it's not mandatory, there's always a couple name players who don't show up, so I figured the the draws would be correspondingly weaker, but. You're mentioning Carl that it all feels like a lock for these clay tournaments, and I absolutely agree. And Monte Carlo may be foremost among them because he's dominated that so much over the years, but he hasn't really dominated weak competition. I mean, there have been a couple like he beat Albert Ramos in the final a couple of years ago, and no one would see him as a as a as typical of a Masters finalist. But taken overall, Monte Carlo is tougher than average. So that another point in Nadal's favor that these uh, there's nothing easy about these these clay masters that he's dominated over the years yeah it was striking to see the top two on the list also were Madrid and Rome so to take that along with uh, Monte Carlo which looks to me is just below average at 0.98 but still much higher than I would have expected too for being kind of optional Uh, maybe there's something about the clay quarters playing with a high clay court elo playing well at clay court events or or you know the longer rallies tending to make for a larger sample size and fewer upsets but it it was especially surprising to me because if you look at so we're looking at you know 10 madrids on clay and 58 rome and monte carlos that's 68 and nadal has won 20 something of them high 20s of them so most of the time the average rating was not facing nadal like that was nadal facing other people so there wasn't the all-time best clay elo in the mix and yet it still had a really um the the winner had a tough time yeah one last thing i want to touch on about the masters is um last week suleiman jumped on the theme that the masters are are skewed in a way that that doesn't favor Federer because there's no grass court masters. And then we do have, uh, there's a higher percentage of clay masters than there are clay slams. Um, do you think that's a legit argument uh, in favor of Federer or against Rafa? Well, the three over nine versus one over four feels like a rounding error to me. Like, in the past, we've had clay at other majors as well, and you can make the argument, maybe Rafa has at some point, that there should be a second clay major. Um, I know that you know Forest Hills was at times played on, on green clay. Green clay? Mm-hmm. Um, some kind of clay. Some yeah, kind of clay. clay. <laughs> um, rich clay. And <laughs> the... The, not, the no grass is, I think, a stronger argument. But as we talked about last week, 
the skew for Federer on grass relative to, let's say, hard courts where six of the nine masters are played is not that extreme. So I don't think like we could you could probably actually calculate this, like figure out how much better his chances would have been by just using grass court ELO instead of hard court for one or two masters each year, theoretically two of the hard courts, but I guess it could be one hard, one clay. And my guess is it just wouldn't make nearly as big a difference. Like Shanghai, as we just discussed, is fast hard court. Paris is a fast indoor hard court. Um, he's done really well at Indian Wells. Because he's, it's hard to make the argument both that he should be considered greatest of all time because he's good on lots of surfaces and he's been hurt because one of the surfaces he's better on has been undervalued. Yeah, and I've been I I have been thinking about this subject a lot for the, I mean I I'm not I generally shy away from the the greatest debates because there are so many things that just can't be answered about them, but I I hadn't thought about that issue for a while until Suleiman brought it up so forcefully, and ultimately if if you do make that argument I think you end up you end up relying on an assumption that the tennis schedule should be a certain way that it it should be fair among the surfaces based on some, I don't know, underlying truth. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, ultimately you can only judge players by the, the, the schedule there is. So the, the only real argument you, you can make, I think that there should be more grass court masters or fewer clay or whatever, is that these players grew up in an era where there were more grass court tournaments. So if you're training as a 12 year old, then if you're seeing X percent of matches being played on grass, then maybe you're going to train to to play, to favor grass that much. Uh, I don't even know if that's the answer, but ultimately, like when you start hypothesizing other surface mixes, then I mean you're talking about the greatest of all time in some mostly similar but alternate dimension in which that is how tennis is played, and that's not the one that we're working with here so i'm not i'm not sure how to settle that yeah and it it plays into something we've talked about a lot with changes to davis cup and and new formats in tennis and so on that there's this this sense that the way things are right now and maybe have been for five or ten years is the way things have always been and always ought to be where the reality of tennis history is completely different from that and players all the time had to had to deal with changes and sometimes changes happened at at the last minute and players got invitations to tournaments you know the day before and uh i mean i guess that still happens in some cases but players have always had to adjust in the very near term and should never go into a career expecting that how things are at age 18 is how things are going to be at age 37 yeah and maybe that that speed of change will start accelerating with some of the other events that are on the table and, and happening soon. And I mean, maybe there'll be a different mix of surface speeds maybe the surfaces themselves won't change. But, um, but just like we've been saying, Shanghai seemed faster this year. If, if, if for some possibly financial reason, tournaments decided it's in their interest to speed things up, that'll, 
be something players have to adjust to and so on. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think we have had, had this period of stasis lately that, um, that lulls us into thinking this is the way tennis should be. And I mean, the open era of tennis is just not that long in the grand scheme of things. And if you think about how many different sort of sub eras we've had since 1968, then you get a sense for just how fast these things change sometimes. Just look at Jeff's post about the masters and read the names of some of these masters events and you'll appreciate how, how much these things can change, which also means, yeah, it could change. We could get a grass masters. It's not a bad idea, but it, there's no sense of like that's how that there's some fixed absolute golden ratio for tennis surface distribution. Yeah, exactly. So, putting a putting a cork in the the, the, the goat debate for now. Um, I want to get to WTA, but before we switch over, we are a few weeks away from the tour finals in London. We're starting to get a sense of of who the field is right now. Unfortunately, we're almost definitely lost Juan Martin Del Potro. Uh, I don't think he's officially said that the season is over, but uh, but with the injury he sustained in Shanghai, sounds like he's not coming back this year. So we definitely have Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, Alexander Zverev in the, in the field. You and say then, definitely Nadal, but he'd also be a question oh, mark, right? Exactly, Yes. Um, I put an X next to Del Potro in my notes. <laughs> I did not put an X next to Nadal. And that's the factor that really matters. <laughs> so yes, definitely Djokovic, Federer, Zverev, hopefully Nadal. Um, and then beyond that, I, one of the reasons that I kind of hope Nadal is in there is because of what it does to the to the rest of the field right now. This is completely trivial, but the, the current leaders to fill out the field are Chilich, Kevin Anderson, and Dominic Team, And then in 9th and 10th, or 8th and 9th, if you take out Del Potro, are Nishikori and Isner, who are basically tied. There's 70, 70 points between them, and I think it would be super cool if they were duking it out for the next few weeks for the eighth spot, especially since their playing styles are so different, and it would make me so happy if Nishikori won that duel and Isner lost it. Um, that's pretty much your field. I mean, Jeff if, is an if, American, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I am an American. I'm sorry. Um Borna Chorich and Fabio Fanini are about seven, eight hundred points back of those two. And if, if Nadal's out, then maybe they could be a factor with a good Paris run or something. But basically that your field is is Nishikori or Isner or Nishikori and Isner if Nadal's out. So so Carl do you th- start with the easy question. Is Djokovic your favorite going into this tournament? Yes. What do you th- what do you think the odds are that Djokovic is our world Tour Finals champion. Thirty-eight percent. I like it. Very precise. What do you think the odds are that Nadal plays? I think it depends a lot on where the ranking lies. But uh, if he doesn't think he has a great shot at year end number one, I think it's pretty low. Uh, that translates into a number of 47%. Oh, that's higher than I might have said myself. Um, this is my, my ploy as podcast host to make Carl do all the hard work. Um, it's not really hard work. I just make something up. Okay, it, it sounded hard <laughs> that time. Uh, and what do you think the odds are that Federer wins this one? 
20%. And of of the rest of the pack, let's let's say Nadal plays. So the rest of the pack is Zverev, Chilich, Anderson, Team, and fingers crossed Nishikori. Um, if one of those pulls it out, a la Dimitrov last year, um, who do you think the, the surprise winner is? Zverev. Zverev, okay. So that would be a really... A, a really big step for him. Well, I guess. I mean, he's won Masters 1000s, beating all-time greats in the finals, sometimes crushing them. So this is this is a different format, but it also means you have to win fewer matches, and it's best of three, which is always when he is at his best. That is true. I mean, and if I run an ELO forecast on this, it's going to favor him. He's our. I'm pretty sure he's he's the top-ranked guy on hard courts among this bunch. Uh, I would love to see Chilich make a deep run, but I don't think he's he's really loved the the format too much in the past. Yeah, it's so, surprising. Like it should work well for him, but he he hasn't done well at the Tour Finals. Yeah. So yeah, and, and as always, I've given you a hard time, Carl, for focusing on how much the draw matters. But this is a tournament where the draw really matters, uh, especially if. Well, I'm not sure if I, that was going to be true. I was going to say, especially if you get Nishikori in, and then you have a couple guys who aren't super dangerous on a fast court in team in Nishikori, but that might be unfair to Nishikori. Um, well, and also and a, they would be, if that's true, they're at, they would be seven and eight, so they would um, it wouldn't matter that much if neither of them is strong. That's true. As it stands now, they'd be seven and eight. I mean, I can. It, there's not much of a gap between team and the next two spots above him. So if if team wins Vienna, let's say, um, then he'd be up to number six. He'd jump two spots. But yeah, I mean, and neither of them is likely to be a big factor anyway. But yeah, I mean, the, the draw matters, but ultimately it's going to come down to the top few guys probably. So let's switch over to the WTA and have the same conversation about Singapore, which is really close. And I th- We've talked about this before, Carl. You've written about this a little bit. That the WTA schedule it's it's not only more compressed than the ATP schedule. I mean, we're we're seven days away from Singapore getting underway, and it's super weird. I mean, would you agree with that, Carl? That yes. It's so we just got out of the Asian swing with the Premier Mandatory in Beijing, and some of the women stayed in China to play internationals in Tianjin and Hong Kong. And now we have a week in Luxembourg and Moscow, naturally. <laughs> and some of these women are going to Moscow to either to do something. I mean, some of them are trying to to earn their way into Singapore, but some of them are just earning bonuses or I don't know what they're doing. They're in Moscow. That's the main point. And then they'll go back to Singapore. So it, it's a good way to rack up frequent flyer miles. Probably not a good way to keep yourself in good shape for winning a year-end title. But, but yeah, Simona Halep was possibly entering Moscow to earn some some bonuses for playing all the premieres, uh, possibly to ensure that she would be year-end number one, which we just found out today she would be. Um, Sloane Stevens didn't know for sure about her uh, tour finals qualifications, so it, she took a wild card, but now she's definitely in. Um, Pliskova and Burton's are on the bubble. They are there as well. So it's this weird situation where at, if if the draw if the draw were made today, Alina Svitolina would would be in. Uh, but if Pliskova and Burton's both win one or two matches, then Svitolina's out. 
So, yeah, and they're doing this all in Moscow with Singapore next week. It's it it's weird. Um, first question, then Carl. Maybe I, I think I already know the answer to this one, but do you think it'd be better for women's tennis for the sport in general if it could just go Asian swing straight into Singapore for the tour finals? Yes. Now some of the players are effectively able to do that, right? But um, yeah, but it, it, it they might put themselves at a disadvantage by doing it. Uh, what your your big gift to the WTA and ATP for that matter would be if instead of just giving us the qualification cut that moves down throughout the year, plus whether or not a player is qualified, if you could give the probability of them qualifying, like Svitolina probably would have appreciated when she was scheduling, knowing how important it was for her to to play this week to ensure she gets in. Yeah, that's interesting. I've, I've toyed around with stuff like that a little bit, and I've generally decided I'm not interested in messing around with ranking points because there's so many arcane exceptions and Mm -hmm. like the people who who do live rankings i'm in awe of the work they do and the accuracy they achieve for these these rules that i don't care to to mess around with um so yeah the type of probability you're talking about would require building those ranking details into the model but on the other hand i agree it would be super interesting uh i would love to to see how those change throughout the year. I, I did build something at one point that was a full season simulation you could run to see how seedings affected things, but man, it gets really complicated really fast. Uh, all of which is to say, don't count on anybody doing that for next year. Um, so let's see. We've got these nine players in right now. Uh, I was a little surprised to see that I'd forgotten that Sloane Stevens didn't qualify last year, which makes sense given she missed half the season. I mean, she won the U.S. Open, but that was about it. So she went to Zhuhai the week after, and and she was pretty much injured at that point. So it was a a letdown at the end of the season for her. So this is her first appearance in the Tour Finals. Um, We have Halep, who may or may not be injured. It's kind of tough to tell at this point. We have Svitolina on the bubble, who's... I mean, it's tough to tell what's going on with her these days. Uh, Pliskova had a pretty good week in Tianjin, making the final. And Kiki Burton, someone we've talked about a lot on the podcast, who has an opportunity to win a couple matches and overtakes Fidelina for the, the probably the number eight spot. Um, I mean, who will who, of this group of eight or nine women? Who are you most interested in seeing how how they fare in Singapore this year, Carl? I think Osaka. What do you what do you expect from her? I expect a lot. She's played pretty well since winning the U.S. Open, and a lot of the women in the field have not looked their best or been injured or, or both. And I imagine, even though Japan and Singapore are not that close, <laughs> that it's a lot closer than a lot of the players' home countries are, and that she might have a lot of support. Yeah, that could be. I didn't think about that, but it could be a factor. Uh, who do you think? Who do you think the favorite is going in? I don't know. I, I mean, Osaka. I think it's among Halep. So the the top four now in in the race are are the 
the four slam champs from this year. And Halep and Wozniacki have done well at the event in the past. So maybe they're kind of co-favorites. Wozniacki has picked up her game a bit recently. Halep has has not. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's like with many WTA events, hard to, to name a clear favorite. Yeah, I as I was posing that question, I was trying to come up with an answer myself and having a really hard time. I mean, I think Simone is the biggest wild card of them all because she's been injured for basically the entire Asian swing. She she played out her match in Wuhan, but she talked about her back after that. She retired from her first match in Beijing. She's going to play Moscow, and but it's tough to know whether she's going just to show up and collect a check or just get a practice match or two in. Like, I would not be surprised at all if she wins a match and then withdraws from the quarterfinals or something like that. And if she does that, that could mean any number of different things. I mean, it could be a real injury. It could be just a, a little bit of, of soreness and not wanting to bother three days before Singapore gets underway. I mean, no matter what happens... I think it, it it's not going to give us any clarity on what to expect from Simona next week. Uh, a lot of the other women haven't played in Beijing, but in pretty wide range of results there. I mean, Sloan in particular could show up and play great, but as we talked about a few weeks ago, her record in Asia is really bad. So, I mean, the, the, the talent is there. The surface isn't going to work against her, but, I mean, if there's one person you're going to pick to not win a single match is probably her. Um, if Kiki Burton qualifies, do you think she has a chance, Carl? Yeah, absolutely. She She's shown recently that she's not a one-surface wonder, and she's done more lately than a lot of the women in the field. Yeah, I mean, she definitely has has racked up a lot of, the, a lot of wins over the course of the season. And yeah, when we're talking about a field that is... So even, I don't know what the explicit opposite of top heavy is, uh, but it's this. So when you have no favorites at the top of the field, then whoever gets in as number seven or number eight, then they definitely have a shot as well. Um, one other WT topic I wanted to touch on before, I mean, we'll talk more about Singapore next week, I'd imagine. But Simona has clinched the year-end number one ranking, which is two years in a row now and someone just let's see this was i can give credit for this one this was diego barbiani on twitter who said halep's now at 50 weeks as number one in the world uh and she'll get to 61 i think at the end of this year so we, we know she'll get to 61 by which time she'll tie and overtake victoria azarenka in weeks at number one and she'll get within 10 weeks of wozniacki for ninth most weeks at number one. So she's in the top 10 in what's a pretty important category, I think, weeks at number one. Um, I'm not sure how much weight to put on it, but I mean, the big question then, if she's number 10 in this key category, do you think that Halep is one of the top 10 WTAers of all time? No. Definitely not? We're doing goat again. All right, let's do it. What? Um, are, yeah, I, de- I definitely. 
I mean, what does definitely mean in this world? As of this moment and as of where she'll be when she enters the top 10 and passes Azarenka, no, I don't think so. And yeah, that that's the question. I mean, I, I'm not asking you to forecast the remaining, hopefully, ten glorious years of her career, but but yeah, if if she if she faded out next season, and this was this was all we got from her, and I I, I have to feel like I have to acknowledge this every time we talk about Simona that I'm a, a a crazy fanatical Simona Halep fan. But even with that, I yeah, I agree with you, Carl. She's not top ten of all time. I think that does raise some really interesting questions about how to evaluate tennis careers. Like I'm, I I keep saying I'm not interested in goat debates and then I keep having them. So maybe I'm lying to myself and you are, are lovely listeners. But um, what's even more interesting to me is how you measure tennis careers beyond the very top, because at the very top, you can look at things like slam titles and for the men, masters titles and the women premier titles and weeks at number one. But if if you get past the big four, or you get past Serena, Venus, Monica Seles, Steffi Graf, Everett, Navratilova, that next group of players who were great for a while, maybe won a couple slams, made some other finals, how you rate them seems really difficult. And I, I, I have no idea how to start. I mean, if you're, Carl, if you're comparing Simona to, I don't even, I can't even come up with who the other women in this conversation would be offhand, but the women who aren't, aren't really number one contenders, but are in the top 30, let's say. I mean, what are the factors that lead you to so confidently say Halep is not among, let's say, the top half or top third of that group? In this case, I was doing the simple task of looking at all-time weeks at number one, WTA, and who are some of the players she's above. And there are a bunch who either clearly or arguably have had better careers than her. Maresmo, Kerber, Sharapova, Tracy Austin, Kim Kleisters, Capriati, Sanchez Vicario, Venus Williams, Ivan Gulagang, Gulagang, sorry, Kali. Uh, certainly some some of those you could you could say Halep's ahead of, but not all of them. And then if you look at the names above her on the list, I mean, I guess Wozniacki would be the would be the closest case. Who do you think has had a better career at this point, Wozniacki or Halep? I think you have to go with Wozniacki. I mean, I think Halep could overtake her, but Wozniacki has a lot of quality titles mm-hmm. in her career. I mean, mm-hmm. I think people end up focusing on the on the slams, and we'd be talking about it even more if she hadn't won the Australian Open this year, but Man, we a few months ago, um, the match charting project started looking at at premier finals and how many of those we had charted and how many of those we we could find video for. And and I I'd forgotten the the years where Wozniacki was there every week. I mean she she played so many premier finals. I mean she didn't win them all, but I mean, when when Serena wasn't winning, Wozniacki was winning, or at least semifinal or final just constantly and that I mean that's what you have to do if you're going to be number one for as long as as she was I mean, we've seen Halep do it to some extent as well with her uh, lack of success at the majors uh, so yeah I mean it, it's it, and that's partly in Wozniacki's case it's partly from longevity since she's been either really good or pretty good for a long time uh, Halep isn't close to that and you have to give some credit for that 
But I think a lot of the other women on your list you mentioned were below Halep and Weeks at number one. It's the slam success that makes the difference, right? I mean, you, you see someone further down the list who has, I don't know, four slams, and you kind of have to give the nod to that person over Halep with her one, right? Yeah, that's that's the first pass. I think in some cases it's also total titles or weeks in the top five or other things. But yeah, I mean, that's just scanning the list and seeing the names and remembering that that player had four or five or in Venus Williams case, seven, almost as many as her 11 weeks at number one. (laughs) Wow, that's an interesting stat. I wonder if there are any players with more slams than weeks at number one. Well, there are players with one slam who never got to number one. (laughs) I suppose that would be the way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so I think we can agree. Um, Halep has a long way to go to live up to her spot on the on the weeks at number one list. But that's sometimes how it goes, too, is that players are at the top for a while and then don't get back there, but sprinkle in some some great results throughout the rest of their career. Yeah, and I can I can definitely see Simona doing that. Um, couple other notes as we're rapidly approaching the one hour mark. I wrote something about Arena Sabalenka, who's up to number two in the WTA ELO rankings and number one on hard courts, which puts her in 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 the same group as many of those women you just mentioned, Carl. Um, she's one of the very few players to get that high in the ELO rankings without ever getting to number one, although I think she'll get there eventually. So those of you who listened to our episode a couple weeks ago will probably want to check that out as well. Um and I also have to acknowledge the return of Marguerite Gasparian, who's one of my favorite players to watch, mostly because she has a one-handed backhand and a somewhat unorthodox one. Have you watched her play, Carl? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Everyone else out there, if you haven't seen Gasparian play, definitely seek that out. I mean, it's it's very different than my other favorite WTA one-handed backhand, Victoria Golubich, but... Um, quite effective and she was injured for a long time just started coming back won the title in Tashkent a few weeks ago made the quarterfinal in Linz um this past week I think she's in the 130s or so in the rankings without a lot of tournaments this year so one more good result and we could see her in Australia which would be great for all parties except for the people who have to face down her dangerous one-handed backhand Jeff is making the one-handed backhand motion as he talks you know I'm not shockingly Cured. Cured. Yeah, it was the shame of doing a live podcast with my friends. They they saw me doing it and mocked me mercilessly through my entire wedding party. <sighs> it was a tough night. Time for so, new friends. <laughs> time for new friends. Yeah, I'm glad glad you said it first. Didn't want to have to have that conversation. So, yeah, Carl, anything else from the last week of tennis that we haven't brought up that you would like to? Well, I... I just second your endorsement of your own Sabalenka post. People should definitely read it. And what I'd love to know, you found that basically everyone who reached the top two in ELO, or two-thirds of the women who did, reached reached number one in the official rankings, and most of the rest reached the top four. And I'd love to know, like, which is a leading indicator. Like, is ELO usually ahead of the official rankings it would make sense intuitively it would make me feel good about elo i'd love to know if it's true yeah i that's on my list i would love to know that too i mean my my theory that might be your theory that i've stolen from 
talking about this is that if you look at year-end ELO ratings and year-end rankings, that the ELO ratings are going to be a better predictor of the following year-end rankings, um, which would be evidence that it is the leading indicator. It certainly seems like it should be because ELO should reflect where a player's at now. I mean, it's built to be predictive, so it's built to be looking at least one match ahead or at least the, the way I've tweaked ELO for tennis is, is built that way, whereas the rankings are explicitly a, a lagging indicator, I mean, at least as far as predictiveness is concerned. They summarize how a player has played for the last 12 months. So they have different purposes, and if they are serving those purposes correctly, then, yeah, it should be a leading indicator. Uh, certainly the fact that you can have a player like Sabalenka race to the top like that, or I, I just noticed this morning when I updated the... ATP ratings, Daniel Medvedev is in the top 10 in ATP ELO. Um, that is either foolishly over-optimistic or a leading indicator. Definitely not a lagging indicator. Um, he took a set off so Federer in Shanghai too. Yeah, he did. I and mean, he's, he's he's actually does it, under the radar a really strong season. I mean, he's won three titles now. Um, yeah, we, we should probably make some time to... to watch some Medvedev and, and talk about him on an upcoming podcast since he's he's definitely moved himself into at least the territory being interesting. He's 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 not one of these anonymous guys in the outside the top thirty who you don't really have to, to know too much about. Um we'll have to so do yeah, a I mean, G mode debate at some point. A what? G mode, greatest Medvedev of all time. That could be an interesting conversation eventually. Yeah. Daniel versus Andre Medvedev, who has either a Masters title or at least a Masters final or two. So Andre's currently in the lead, probably, but but being I mean, he's definitely in the lead in the clubhouse. He's not going to add to his career totals, whereas Daniel probably will. So let's wrap it up there. Carl, as always, thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. And everyone, thank you for listening. We'll be back next year and next week. <laughs> Maybe next year as well, but one thing at a time. Uh, yeah, and then next week we'll we'll dig into Basel and Vienna a little bit more and, and definitely have some more to say about the Singapore field since by then it will be either underway or we'll know the complete field. So check back with us then um, for this week. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you later.